Hey everybody, it's Jeannie Faulkner. You're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast. I'm the author of Common Sense Pregnancy, the book, a Penguin Random House publication that came out in 2015, where I give you the inside track information on everything you need to know to navigate a healthy pregnancy, labor, and delivery. So... Those of you who have been listening to me for a while know that I keep track of current events, and then I like to come on this show here and talk about them um, and kind of connect the dots between the stuff that's going out and on in the media and in the world and how it impacts individual parents, how it impacts individual women and doctors and providers. And at this time, you know, the main thing that's in the news who else? Trump, sexual assault, and millions and millions of tweets about women's first times. So let's talk about that. You know, I am kind of stunned at how many people are willing to talk now about the first time they were grabbed or taunted or touched without permission in a violating way. Frankly, I'm so glad women are talking about this because we used to think it only happened to some women. And many of us kind of felt like it was just, it just happened to us. And now we know, no, it happens to every woman. I, I would hazard to guess every woman. Ask around. Ask the women in your life. Ask your friends. Ask your sister, your mom. When was the first time a guy grabbed you, kissed you, or groped you without your permission? Were you 9, 12, 25, 46? Were you walking down the street? Were you at school the first time somebody called you something at the beach, in a barn, on your bike, and stopped at a stop sign? Did you know at the time that it was a violation of your rights? Or did you just write it off as stuff that happens to girls? Do you still feel guarded? Do you worry about your friends, sisters, daughters, and, you know, all the other women and girls in your life? Because you know they're always, always at risk for being hassled, attacked, or assaulted. I worry less and less about myself, which is a real privilege of being, you know, a 50-something woman. But I worry about my daughters all the time. I know they've gotten, you know, threatened or catcalled or, you know, they've had things happen when they're walking home from work or school or on the subway or on a work site. It's just something that always plays in the back of your mind, the very distinct possibility that at some point in your day, somebody's going to say something or do something, and it's going to just really impact you. You know, I, a while back, it's been a while now, but I was driving a car full of teenage girls, and they were talking about this very subject. And one of them said, it's like we're prey, and we always have to be on guard for the attack. Yeah. It's like that for all women. Ask around. So, you know, connecting it to how that relates to motherhood and parenthood and all that, you know, these uncomfortable and sometimes extremely traumatizing episodes that seem to happen to virtually all women at some time in their lives, it leaves an imprint that lasts and that imprint shows up at some of the most unexpected and vulnerable times of your life. One such time that comes to mind is when women are in labor or receiving prenatal care. You know, their bodies and lifestyles are scrutinized and weighed and measured and examined and comments are made and mandates and judgments are handed down. And, you know, hopefully all of this is done with a woman's full consent and with loads of respect and compassion. And frankly, that's, you know, mostly how it goes. Um, I think that most healthcare providers, especially those that go into obstetrics and midwifery and, you know, the birth, the birth industry, they're pretty sensitive. We know what we're doing. We know how vulnerable this is. And we're careful and re as respectful as we possibly can be. Unfortunately, I know for a fact that that's not how it always goes. And I've seen, I've seen several, plenty of obstetricians and nurses who 
bully women to submit to care that they, you know, don't understand, they don't really want, they're not ready for, or, you know, something like that. And then they get guilt tripped if they resist or refuse. And, you know, I've worked with a couple of doctors who were such bullies, they pull the sheet off their laboring patient and demand that they spread their legs for a vaginal exam. They don't ask, they just go for it. It's shocking. And, you know, as as a nurse, you have a responsibility to protect your patient. But at the same time, you have to accommodate a doctor who has way more power and authority than you do, especially since he generates money for the hospital. Sometimes the best a nurse can do is to anticipate what a patient will undergo and need and prepare and support her the best you can. And hopefully along the way, they also have, you know, the management that they can go to and say, hey, this is what happened. This isn't right. And change will happen. Um, you know, that's what we hope for. I think a far better approach is for every physician to acknowledge that consent isn't just something that happens in the bedroom. It has to happen every single time they touch their patient. Patients have to tell their physicians that, you know, they don't want to be touched without permission. I don't care if you have to do an exam and you have 15 other patients waiting for you. You have the time to take the extra five seconds to say, do I have your permission to examine you? Or I'm going to go ahead and touch you now. Is that okay? Every doctor, every time, every woman. That's basic respect. You don't get to just grab our pussies. There, I said it. It had to be said. That's been the comment of the week. It's been shocking. So now, though, I'm not going to let the bad guys get the final say here. Let's talk about what Michelle Obama had to say this week in a speech on the campaign trail. She said, the measure of any society is how it treats its women and girls. Yes, it is. Now, the men and boys in my life would never treat women the way that they're seeing certain men treat women. 99% of the medical professionals that I've worked with do not treat women this way. They come to the profession with great respect, great compassion, and all the best intention. But there's that 1%, isn't there? And even, you know, among these excellent doctors and nurses and midwives I've worked with, none of us know the full extent of what our patients have experienced in life and what traumas they've endured. They can only trust us to take, you know, help take care of their bodies and their babies during labor and birth if they know that they have the ultimate control over consent. That's ultimately what informed consent is all about. And it's much less popular <laughs> sidekick informed refusal. Oh, there's so much to talk about there, right? Well, let's keep talking about the good guys. Let's keep talking about the men and the boys who get it, who are trying their best to raise the level of discourse and to demand a greater standard from themselves and their peers and their friends and colleagues in how they treat women and each other. You know, a respectful standard of conversation between each other. You know, n not all men, not even most men act this way. So common sense pregnancy and parenting is definitely strong on women's perspectives. But all this stuff we're talking about, it, they aren't women's issues. They're issues that affect all of humanity in really essential and critical ways. No matter, you know, what the podcast topic is about, whether it's respect or creativity or parental leave or mental health or healthcare or politics, whatever it is, Feminism is about all of us coming together to raise the bar. You know, this is our time in history, people. What are we going to do with our hundred years, right? Let's make sure we get this part right. Okay, enough. Today's guest is absolutely one of the good guys. Y'all know I'm still thinking about the music I heard this summer. And I, especially today here in Portland, Oregon, where it is pouring rain, um, <clears throat> Excuse me. I talked with Sarah Clark a few weeks back about when mom is a rock star. Um, but what about when dad is? What's it like to raise children and be a family when you're a working musician? Um, this week we're going to talk to Hans Eberbach, 
lead singer for Joy and Madness, about just that. Let's get Hans on the phone. Hello. Hi, Hans. This is Jeannie here in Portland, Oregon. How Jeannie, are you? How are you doing? I was wondering where you were, were based I'm out of. Portland. Okay. Well, yeah. uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to have you. You're in Sacramento, right? Yes. And it's absolutely I, gorgeous today. Oh, I bet. I bet. That's the time to be in that that part of California. My sister lives in Chico. Okay. Yep. I play there a number of times. we got a show coming up uh, December 3rd at the Big Room. Oh, so yeah? A little, little plug there. Yeah. I'll tell, I'll tell her. You, you got to go. She, she already knows you. She goes to um, music festivals in California, and she's seen you there. Right on. Yeah, we're starting to kind of break into it a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me read a little bit of your bio, and then let's start talking. I've got so many questions for you. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Hans Eberbach is an award-winning vocalist and songwriter who was born on the West Coast, raised in the Northeast wilds of Maine, moved back to California after high school to launch his musical career. Since the mid-90s, he's sung for a bunch of bands, including Sweet Vine, eventually moved to L.A. to submit music for TV and film, and then moved back to Sacramento in the 2000s. Since then, he's released a solo album called Up is the Only Way Out, and currently sings with Joy and Madness, which was the band I loved so much and listened to at um, Grass Valley World Fest. World Fest. I love World Fest. Yeah, Yeah, that makes sense. Oh, okay. I know. I, I think my listeners are going to be tired of hearing about, oh, my God, my music fest summer. Because I went to a couple of – I went down to Grass Valley, and then I went to one in um, Montana, and I'm still riding the high. They're just going to have to go, too, so they'll have stories of their own to tell. I know. I know. We need it. You know, Portland is, is a dark country. Yes. Right? And so in summertime, we just have to soak up all the sun, all the fun. We got to dance it out, man. We got to. I think we're going to be heading up there. Uh, it looks like maybe January-ish. So in your in your darkest, rainiest times, we'll try to bring a little little spot of light. Oh, please. We need you. We need you. <laughs> That'll be so much fun. I'll be there. Yeah. January, February, something like that. Cool. Cool. So I always, um, my first question after I've read a bio is, who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Hans Eberbach. I'm a singer songwriter um, for a couple of bands. The one that you saw, Joy and Madness, um, is kind of a funk soul explosion. It's kind of a, a revival uh, and an evolution of a lot of kind of vintage funk and soul sounds with kind of modern pop sensibilities. Um, and then I do a lot of singer songwriter kind of soul stuff with a smaller four piece band called Hans and the Hot Mess uh, that represents a lot of stuff off some of the solo work I've done. Um, and then, you know, I just hustle a lot. I do a lot of, uh, kind of online, uh, like vocal tracks for people around the world. Um, and then just like a lot of little solo acoustic shows and house concerts. And, um, I'm a father of two kids, uh, Eli and Liera and, uh, married to a woman named Jonica Eberbach. That's How the nutshell. My kids are 10 and 12. The girl's 12, the boy's 10. All right. So it's a really good, uh, good spot. It's that sweet spot. Yeah, yeah. That's a good time. And, and the fact that you can say that about your 12-year-old daughter is pretty significant. Oh, I mean, we're, uh, a, we're already starting to see. Yes. We're, there's, it's definitely on the verge of 13. There's, uh, all the signs are there. But um, she's not boy crazy yet. And um, uh, we're still – the elf, elf on a shelf still comes every Christmas. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad for all of that. Awesome. Yeah. So it sounds like you're doing what so many musicians and creative um, people that make an inter- uh, living in the creative industries is you've got a lot of different pans on the fire. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. kind of indicative of, of this day and age. The, uh, you know, I got my start uh, with that first band that you were talking about, Sweet Vine, and that was right before Napster and all that stuff kind of uh, exploded and changed the landscape for uh, musicians and and artists and it was very much like an old school kind of record industry um you know trip but now um after all that kind of fell apart and was rebuilt a, a guy like me in his 40s kind of with the family um you know doing what i do can kind of make his way and carve a path and find a niche just like you in broadcasting and you know a lot of other people we've, we've been given a voice yeah and yet there's such there's such a professional push 
for, you know, people are always trying to tell me, you need to have it all under one umbrella. I mean, oh yeah, I write, I podcast, I speak, I do all of these things, mm-hmm. and that's what I do. But, you know, everybody wants you to, like, just one thing. Get one title. I don't right. know what it is. I don't know what the title is. For you, I think, though, it's musician. You're mm-hmm. a musician. Absolutely, yeah. First and yeah. foremost. Yeah, that's what you do. I've dabbled in some other things. I definitely do art for a lot of our, you know, our posters and stuff. And I mean, I'd say I've kind of produced some of my tracks and done some mixing, but mostly it's songwriting and singing and performing. Yeah. And you're really good at it. You're (laughs) really good at it. Yeah. Thanks. Well, I should be. Jesus, I've been doing it, you know, long enough. I I see uh, some of these guys uh, and and girls coming up in their 20s and um, some people just have the light turned on really bright right away. They're just super in tune. And yeah. uh, sometimes I feel like I'm a little behind the curve on some things, but it's a, it's a good journey. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about sort of your career path because mm-hmm. um, you've got some interesting stuff in your bio. Like you went to L.A. at a point to do TV and film music? Yeah. So uh, I guess, you know, I moved here from Maine uh, in the early 90s. I hooked up with some guys here in town, um, started this band called Sweet Vine. Our our drummer had some relationships in the industry at that point um, and sent some demos out. And just this would have been 93, 94. It just immediately got response. It was just kind of a Buddy Holly story kind of thing. You know, we just you know, met in some, uh, airport conference room and, and played a few songs for this guy. And it was just, you know, you got the publishing deal, you get the record deal. We had, you know, these big checks coming in all of a sudden wow. and, um, yeah. And then, uh, Columbia records came, signed us, went to New York, made the record, you know, and, um, there was a, it was, there was some time between the record being finished and the release that kind of started to spin some wheels and things kind of started to, some cracks started to show, uh, in the whole experience. And then eventually that band disbanded after that first record was released. Um, and the first tour we did about a year on the road and the guitar player quit in the middle of the tour went, you know, down gloriously in flames. And we came back kind of with our, our tails between our legs and started work on, uh, another record and then ended up just getting a payout and kind of moving on. And that's the point I moved to LA working with that same guy that got us onto Columbia was just submitting small stuff. I think he was, he was at Fox. Uh, so working on things like Ally McBeal and, and other shows that were on mm-hmm. at that time. Mm-hmm. So I'd be submitting for stuff like that, but I was mostly, you know, holed up in a, a house by the beach uh, in Hermosa beach with my wife and kind of learning how to produce myself finally and um, kind of put songs together from the ground up. And uh, after a couple of years, we came back from that, had some small successes here and there, uh, through my friend. And, uh, I actually started working, uh, at the jail for the sheriff's department. That was kind of when I had my first uh, child, our girl, Liera. Whoa. Yeah. I came back here actually to start a band called looking star. That was basically the core of sweet Vine, that first band. Uh-huh. And that just kind of, kind of followed the same path in a quicker uh, fashion after about two years, it kind of uh, crumbled in the same way. That's when I started working at the jail and having uh, our first child and all that. You got to do what you got to do when you're becoming a dad. I'll tell you what, it's, yeah, it, it's true. And it was, um, it was an interesting time because it was, for me at that point, it was a very um, lost time, like a very um, hopeless time in a way, you know, and, um, you know, I, I kind of told you earlier, you know, we were in a sweet, sweet spot here with the kids being like 10 and 12 and I, I really mean that in a deep way because this, those first stages, like the initial, you know, first couple of years when, when she was a baby and then her brother and I was, I was working, uh, in the jail system. It was a really dark time. I had stopped playing music full time for the first time in, in years. And it was, um, I just didn't know where things were going to go from here, you know, especially with the way the record industry had changed and and all of that. And I felt a lot of guilt at the time um, for not kind of being able to really soak in this, the fatherhood experience, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. initially really um, kind of lost in my own head at that time and wondering where my whole life was going and um, very reluctant, even in the role, um, 
at first feeling kind of lost and overwhelmed. Um, yeah, there's and, a whole huge identity shift that happens for parents. Absolutely. You, yeah, you're no longer the person that you were. And all of a sudden, you're somebody's father. I mean, that you're not even yourself anymore. You're somebody's father. Mm-hmm. And especially, I would think, for you know, working in a creative industry, especially in music, I mean, what if the valve is all turned off? Yeah. But I don't get it anymore. Absolutely. I mean, that was that was definitely a part of it. Like, I just kind of remember not even picking up a guitar for a little while. And again, I think that shift wouldn't have been quite so drastic if I was still um, making music, you know, full time. It was mm-hmm. that it was the double whammy of this new fatherhood and then this loss of a life that I'd known for you know, a number of years coming from a place, from a place that was, you know, poised to be this next big thing out of Sacramento and living these kind of, you know, rock star dreams on a legitimate level, you know, fast forward to this dark, you know, hole underneath the jail, you know, 12, yeah, Yeah. 12 hours a day, you know, watching misery, uh, being, you know, cycled through. And then you have a newborn who's mm-hmm. not going to let you sleep. And oh, God, no. knows no. how those babies operate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there was definitely, she was, did her share of crying for sure. Yeah. Uh, don't don't uh, kick yourself too hard for that. That's pretty much the way every parent starts out. Yes. And, you know, it, there's a lot of perspective now. I'm, I'm happy to be in this place where I can, you know, you have your regrets and you have all the things, of course, you wish you could do over. But um, you also have enough perspective and that realization, that comparison between all of the fellow brothers and sisters in parenthood that we've all been in that same place, you know. Exactly. And, you know, for a lot of women that I talk to, it is, um, it's having, you know, they, they have their baby and all of a sudden there's a number of factors that come together that really motivates a lot of creativity. There's, you know, literally the creative energy that's still left over after they've made a human. Yeah, right. Um, and then there is the back-to-work scramble that mm-hmm. is so hard. And way too soon. Way too yeah, soon. and so, you know, a lot of women um, find that that's a time where they get creative and they get busy and they start making magic happen. I would agree with that. Uh, definitely, I mean, I, I know you, I was looking at some of your questions at some point, and... Uh, you were kind of looking at how things had changed since fatherhood. And, and I remember those first couple of years, especially suddenly, you know, you, that leisure time is gone. We all know that it's yeah, just, done. You're, it's just completely gone. You're the baby trumps everything. It doesn't matter if you're feeling it right then and you're laying down a track. It doesn't yeah. matter, you know? Yeah. Um, so I definitely became much more efficient than I ever thought possible for myself. Um, much more aware of, moments of free time and using that time. So on one hand, it's, it's hard to be that on all the time to where you're really able to use every moment as efficiently as possible. But on the other hand, it's a real positive thing to evolve in that way and and become that much more um, razor sharp. Yeah. Yeah. The kids will make or break you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they broke me a few times for sure. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, I know a lot of musicians. Um, my husband's a musician. My son is a musician. And oh, you're you in know, trouble. You're surrounded by it. I always have been. I always have been. I deal well. I do well. God um, bless you for the work you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you are a natural born musician, you're not going to squash that for long. It, it really can't be squashed. Not without damage to yourself right. and others. Yeah. Right. Right. So you were in jail when mm-hmm. you became a dad. Mm-hmm. I do have to know what you did. What, so what? I was uh, a non-sworn uh, position. It's called basically just a records officer. Um, and initially I was dealing with like the booking paperwork when people came in. The, you know, the uh, officer would bring someone off the street. They'd come to my window. We'd talk about, you know, what had happened. I'd look at the the paperwork, kind of the synopsis, um, set bail for the charges, help with the processing. And then eventually I moved into a smaller uh, central control room in the belly of the jail by the intake garage. And I'd just be running the doors and elevators and stuff through the uh, through the facility, you know. Um, what it, city were you in? In Sacramento. And oh. it's it's 
that job is like it's 12 hour shifts and it's like the most tedious thing but the, the with the most tension you know uh attached to it because it's incredibly boring and and then you look down for a second and you look up and there's an elevator full of inmates and some guys shanking another guy and it's all hell breaks loose and you've got to you know get doors open get deputies there get the ambulance called get you know make sure nobody's taking advantage of the situation to, you know, none of the other inmates are taking advantage of the situation to do whatever else, you know, there's cameras all around. It's, it's uh, the last thing in the world I ever expected in my life to be doing. And, uh, but you had a baby, had a baby. I had basically come back from LA and, and started a temp job um, through my wife actually at the time, um, just doing compiling stats for the auto theft task force um, part-time, like five hours a day. It was a multi-agency task force. So when the baby came, one of the sheriff's department guys was like, Hey, you should apply to the jail. And we lived right in West Sacramento. So at least as far as proximity, I wasn't driving like an hour, an hour and a half each way to spend 12 hours in hell. But, uh, by the end of, you know, four years, five years, I, I quit. Um, but you know, three, four years in, I was like 40 pounds heavier than I am now. Um, I would, I was dealing with severe depression. I would just like burst into tears and do a pillow like for no reason, just in a it's like some lifetime channel movie or something. But not that I mean I don't say that mockingly, but it's like I'm mocking myself. It's just uh it, it, we're in the darkness. Dude, absolute, absolute darkness. And you know, my wife obviously was bearing all of that stuff, you know, like a champ and um she was the one that was finally just like, you just need to, we need to get you out of that job. You just got to quit mm-hmm. that job. And at the time I, I, by that last year I had, um, started making some, uh, connections here locally. Again, I had finished finally that solo record up is the only way out and was getting ready to release that. Uh, I joined a band called the nibblers and then, um, just started. Okay. So wait, 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 back up. Mm-hmm. You made the solo album while you were in jail. Yeah, exactly. In and fact, I, I say that while you were in jail, like yes. you're, you're Johnny Cash or somebody. <laughs> right. <laughs> or Merle, Merle Haggard. Yeah. 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 I used my FMLA actually for the second for my son when my son was born to track and like basically finish the rest of that in the local studio here, actually close by where we were staying after he was born. Mm-hmm. I mean, check this out when she, when he was born, um, like literally newborn, we were living in a friend's house for like three months. I was sleeping on the couch. The babies were up in a guest room with, with my wife. Um, we, our house here, it had some issues with the flooring that had been laid down. It They'd done some faulty work and it turned into this crazy ordeal where we were out of our house for three, three and a half months while they were dealing with those floors. And um, we had this newborn baby and the four of us, you know, stuffed in our friend's house and they were and a two year old, two year old. And a, yes, exactly. Two and a half years old. Yeah. Thank you. Are you still friends with them? Oh my God. We're the best friends. It was, we honestly, what was funny is we were there through the holidays basically. So, you know, from wow. basically October to January and, um, none of us wanted it to end. And it, oh. it was so funny. Um, I just remember, um, you know, but the, the guy that, my buddy that actually lived there and I would do Irish car bombs and play guitar hero at night just to like let off the steam and the girls would just sit there rolling. There were, it was pretty much the most epic dork moment you could possibly imagine. But, um, we somehow made it all work. And, and it kind of uh, helped you find your way back to the music. It did. It did. <laughs> um, I was, like I said, I was tracking in the studio when I wasn't watching obviously the, the newborn, um, mm-hmm. And I, I pretty much, I buried myself in that. And then once it was released, it was just kind of, um, it was like a five year in the making kind of thing. So it was a really kind of a sigh kind of moment. It was just a, a release from all of it and, uh, into the next stage definitely signaled kind of the next, the next phase. Do you like that album still? Um, I do. I do. I wish I could represent it more accurately uh, with the band, the bands that I'm in. But there was, it was very much a studio record. Um, There were a a lot of layers, a lot of electronic stuff going on, a lot of things I programmed. Um, It just, and and they were your songs. Yeah, yeah. Except there was um, a couple tracks I did with Looking Star, that band that that uh, I had done right after coming back from Los Angeles and right before, you know, my 
my uh, daughter was born. Yeah. So I'm, yeah. I'm asking that because, um, you know, I, I, I know quite a few musicians who have made it through their dark time, you know, by hook or by crook, but mostly by the music. Yeah. And they write the shit out of it. Yeah. That's so, that's so true. And then they record it and they put it down and then they move on. Inevitably, they heal and they move on and they go into this brighter place and they don't want to go back. Yeah. So got this really, really great, rich, dense, meaty, meaty material and they don't want to go back to it. It's it for me, the songs that were happening during that time weren't so much uh, about my experience. Um, they were more uh, whimsical, kind of experimental. And I was really trying to establish the sound that I wanted to craft. I was really focused on like the, produ the production of the record, you know, mm -hmm. um, and that sort of thing. Um, the lyrics were definitely still intense. Uh, there was a lot, of, a lot going on lyrically, um, but it wasn't really about my experience at the time until a couple of the later songs, um, a song called Chandeliqua that was about um, the prostitution stings that uh, they brought through the jail. They called them bee stings. And um, I always say that, when I talk about this song that I just, you know, I just had my daughter and um, I saw these girls coming through that, that should be going to their prom, you know, mm. not, not jail for prostitution. Mm. And I would just, you know, I was just struck by a number of them. And a number of them is just, they walk in and their entire presence is just heartbreaking. You just see what life is, has done to them. Mm. And then there were others that had kind of a, were, could still carry themselves with kind of like a nobility and a grace that I, I really, you know, admired. Um, I'm not contrasting the two in a, like a positive or negative way. I just, I was seeing all the effects that this lifestyle yeah. had on, on different, you know, people. And it just spurred me to write the song Chandeliqua, which is a name I pulled off one of the booking sheets. Um, and just amazingly, I got, was contacted even a few years after that after I released the song and put the video up on my website uh, by a girl on Facebook that was asking about Chandeliqua and the background and, and knew this girl, I'm assuming there can't be a ton of Chandeliquas, you know, Not too many, yeah. but, um, but knew her story and um, was wondering if I knew anything else, you know, about the girl or if things had changed for her, which of course I didn't, yeah. but Someday, if that song ever gets big, you're going to hear from Chandeliqua. Or, or a number of them. There's going to be, there's going to be more than I ever thought possible. Yeah. yeah. But um, it was, yeah, it was, I, I'm, people should check out the video. Uh, not, I'm not even saying that as a promotional thing. Uh, I was just really happy with the way the story was able to be captured, you know, in this wordless, you know, kind of musical experience. It was all done in the Sacramento area and, um, there was a girl living next to my wife and I for a, a year or two, whose dad was one of the assistant coaches at the Kings for a couple of years for the, and she had, uh, she had just lost her mother and she was right about the age that, that Chandelique would, would be in this story. And she was just a vibrant kind of young woman. Um, and she took on the role, uh, for this video, um, which was funny cause I was, her dad is, a, you know, big, imposing, you know, basketball player. And he's, he was very quiet and he's very kind of a stoic kind of guy. So I, I felt like a little kid around the dude, but I, you know, i I went over there to ask him if it was okay. Cause you know, she was, she was like 19 or whatever at the time, but I just didn't want it to be weird. You know, Hey, can your you know daughter play this? There was nothing risque about the, uh, the role at all. Of course it was telling this woman's but still, she was trying on a role. Yeah. You know, yeah. and she just killed it. There's just a, a scene in the middle of it where she's writing, like a, a signing a card to a child that she doesn't have custody of, you know, in the mm -hmm. context of the story. And she just, the tears just, you know, just came down. I mean, she just really just fell into that moment and, and yeah. it just took over. It was, it was exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. So, one of the questions that I want to ask you was about how fatherhood impacts your music and essentially your view of the world. And you, and you just kind of hinted to that a little bit about, you know, having the daughter gave you a point of reflection mm -hmm. where you work in the jail. But what else? You know, um, I think probably a lot of the 
familiar things that a lot of people experience on a small level, just a little more awareness of, especially in the internet age of how long your words, you know, last and that the impact of them can last. Right. Um, right. That's a whole, I mean, this, this generation of kids, nobody ever had to learn this before. Yeah. People forgot. Yeah, absolutely. And they still yeah. forget, but the, the flashpoint for when they're crucifying somebody is for whatever reason, with no due diligence, as complete knee-jerk reactions mm-hmm. by the masses, um, that flashpoint is just so intense. It can just destroy people, even if right. it fades out to the next scandal, you know, a week later. Yeah. Um, but I, I, you know, to be honest with you, it's funny, I did kind of see that question and I was thinking to myself, in a lot of ways, I think I might, I might be not the opposite of that, but I'm kind of the parent that probably lives it out pretty naturally in front of his kids. I probably don't filter a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely, I grew up in a conservative Christian background, uh, mm-hmm. like a, a Pentecostal church in the, you know, little town in Maine. And, um, I shed, you know, a lot of that, uh, dogma or whatever for mm-hmm. just kind of the, the core, you know, heart of Christ, uh, type of stuff. Like, you know, um, that, that it just wasn't you service to humanity and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, my point being, I am aware of like staging, um, information to them at a point where I think, you know, they, they can handle it. Like I'm not just all out there. Um, I do tell them and I, I see that it's made an impression on them, um, that, there are things that you can't unsee basically like, um, be careful with your mind, be careful with your soul, be careful with what you see and what you, you know, pursue. Don't, don't just float, you know, be aware, just like you would be aware of your surroundings. If you're in a strange new city and maybe there's danger afoot, um, that same, um, warning applies to, you know, the internet, obviously that, that information highway and, things their friends might want them to do or, or be a part of, you know, I remember distinctly, um, one thing that's been amazing having these kids is you do, obviously you, I've forgotten a lot of my childhood memories. You know, there's a lot you don't remember from being a kid, but you, when you see them live through something, you get a, I, I at least get a total recall moment a lot of times where I'm really not only remembering something I've forgotten, but completely remembering the mind state, like almost mm-hmm. there, you know, yeah. Um, so I distinctly remember as a, as a child at their age, seeing things that, uh, were profoundly disturbing to me, you know, that are even hokey now. And I look at them now, but seeing them at that age, they would latch in my mind and, you know, you would, things can just get stuck in there and cycle and, yeah. you know, you can't protect your kids from everything, but I definitely want them to be wise about what, what they let into them. Into right, their just mind. because they have access to all and everything nowadays doesn't mean they need it all. Just even like pornography is a is a is a terrifying thing to me because yeah. it's um, one click away. It's one click away to the most. Look, I'm not I'm not going to judge what anybody wants to do sexually, um, you know, in terms of between consenting adults and all that. But even even that is a gray area. But I I just. One click isn't just, um, oh, it's a naked girl. You know, I, when I, when I was a kid, you would find like playboys in a field. I don't know why this is like a common yeah, experience between a lot of guys. Like, effort. Yeah. But I mean, you would just stumble on something like that. It's really weird. But, uh, today one click away can throw these kids into like an insane, you know, insane sexual image with, you know, just exactly. any permutation of sex that you could possibly imagine. Yeah. Instantly, and it's just yeah. too over. It's too it's bewildering. Too it's it's yeah. crazy. You don't try to teach calculus to a fifth grader, you know. Right. So you don't. I take. I think that applies to all that stuff. Yeah, I think it does too. I think we're at a really. I think we're at a transitional point in history, mm-hmm. where, you know, the floodgates of information and access to all kinds of things, has only opened recently. I mean, it's what 20 years mm-hmm. and so we're figuring it out and unfortunately some of our kids are going to be they're struggling with it a lot of kids they're absolutely struggling with but it. but a lot of kids aren't and you know your kids my kids are i have a my youngest is 16 mm-hmm. 
And um, they are the ones who are applying some common sense. They're figuring out that, oh, I don't like it there. I'm not going there. Um, and mistakes are being made, but still, they know better than we do on this one because they, are, they were born into the Internet. I, I'm not saying that, that kids don't need to be guided. And right. I'm just saying that in the process of this unfolding in our society, you know, in our world history, this is the generation that is figuring it out. Yeah, and I think you like bring up a good point. Like, uh, as long as you have a strong relationship with your kids and they have a moral compass in place that um, is just based on mutual respect and you know whatever whatever you know religion or creed or whatever that comes from, um, they are going to navigate things. Sometimes I think a lot better than than we think they are. And like you said, they're going to figure out some. A lot of times, these kids have an internal thing that just kind of. Let's them know, hey, that's not for me. That's not what I want to do. You see kids coming up in the most the most horrific backgrounds sometimes or parents that are absentee or, or drug addicts and they, you know, that spurs them to to go to a totally different place because they're they're not gonna live that life, you know? Yeah, yeah. I think that we I think that our kids are at risk for becoming victims, but I think that mostly mm-hmm. they're not. Mostly they're not victims. They're actually becoming champions. Mm-hmm. You know? And we got a learning curve here. Parents have to, they have to have their back. But, you know, it's interesting. Interesting times. I guess what scares me more than really even, you know, porn or what they might be exposed to online is what more like the kind of mentality that the social networking is creating. Like what I was kind of speaking to earlier, just this mob mentality while at the same time um, I'm seeing kids having fear and expressing themselves because they're aware of that at the eternity of the online presence. And that at the same time you're seeing, so that's almost, I think that almost feeds into people um, tending more towards a mob mentality and, and jumping on a bandwagon and being part of a surge of, you know, condemnation or judgment. Um, yeah. And that's frightening. Like when you see um, people being crucified on Twitter in the space of like eight hours where the, suddenly the whole world is, is judging this person by the millions off of like one tweet or one link yeah. to some website. No due diligence. It's a, it's a strange time because like religion's being thrown out the window. But people just in the world are becoming increasingly quick to judge and it just shifts every day like what's politically correct and what's not you know right. and, and where's what, the kindness what can you do? where's the compassion yeah. yeah i and i teach a lot of um advocacy workshops you know basically teaching people how to go from having a passion or a good idea to how to hold a meeting in a you know how to how to hold a meeting with your senator how to use social media oh wow um, yeah for good you know i and I always get to this point in a workshop where I present, usually to kids, the idea that social media is actually citizen journalism, and no generation Mm -hmm. before theirs has ever had the power to broadcast whatever the heck they want. So they Mm -hmm. actually can just, you know, go down the rabbit holes and do what everybody else is doing, or they can be intentional about it. And when they see somebody who is being bullied... They can say, okay, I commit to being their champion. I'm going to post a positive. I'm going to break this cycle and I'm going to just, I'm going to be that person. And, um, you know, I I bring up things like, you know, the revolution that happened in the Middle East, you know, the, the, that was broadcast by citizens. Mm-hmm. Nobody would have known what was going on there if it wasn't for the force of social media. So it has the potential to be the truth. It really does. And we're seeing that. We're seeing that with, you know, people reporting police abuse and, you know, all kinds of things like that. It's just we got to help our kids learn who do they want to be online. Absolutely. And I, I think part of uh, what they need to learn is to do uh, the due diligence. Like you're right. There's a lot of people capturing things and posting things and we're able to see things and, and hear a voice, 
But uh, um, I feel like there's such a flood of information now that people aren't doing their uh, due diligence. They're not sifting through uh, 90% of the BS to get to this 10% kernel of truth. They're not um, looking at things from, I mean, we have like the ability now to, to, uh, look at a number of different websites for the same kind of information or different, you know, views on the same information. But it seems to me like I just see people reacting immediately off of like one post that may or may not be accurate, you know, right. Right. and that's, that's frightening to me. But, um, yeah, especially that connectivity, you know, when you have people reacting in that way at, at a level, we're so connected. Yeah. Yeah. You want to teach people to be responsible with their information and what they're putting out there. Yeah. And that's what you're doing. It sounds like like with advocacy, obviously. um, Yeah. I think kids, kids, especially when I'm teaching um, high schoolers, they like that. They like the idea of taking control Mm -hmm. and the fact that actually, yeah, the responsibility of what happens from here forward on the internet, which ain't going away. Yeah. It's really in their hands. Where do they want to drive it? Right. Yeah. Make it's it not a mine. sacred duty to them, you know? It's, yeah. it's, they, they take that seriously. You know, they have a responsibility to take us forward. It can't be my generation. Yeah. It can't even, I'm older than you, but it can't even be your generation. That's true. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the, the middle of it. I'm in the cusp or I'm, I'm right in the middle of it where you were, I kind of came up through all of that and the internet like developing at like probably the most formative time in my life. And, um, now I'm kind of watching what happens, you know, and, but, and I had all those years of the old school experience beforehand, you know, dial phones and yeah. Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. Pay phones, call boxes on the I five. I'm thankful to be like in that place. I think as a songwriter, as a human being, that's part of the dialogue. I feel like I'm in a really good place to look at, both before and after and to be a voice of reason and a voice of balance and yeah. a voice of, you know, hope. How it should go, how it was. Yeah. 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 And I feel like the older I'm getting, um, I, I, I think as a musician, because of a number of factors, one being that you just meet so many different people from so many different walks of life. And then as a songwriter, you're, looking to be inspired, which a lot of times means really trying to find a different perspective on the things that have been talked about, you know, over and over again by a number of different people. I think because of that, as I grow older, rather than becoming more staunch and ingrained in a lot of my um, beliefs, I think I'm constantly examining them. And I feel like I'm in a process of opening more as, as I grow older rather than closing off. Yeah. Um, and You're I think really lucky that way. I mean, I see so many people, they just get sunk. They get stuck in their 40s. You mm-hmm, know, mm-hmm. they've decided this is how it's always been. This is how it's going to be. This is my viewpoint. And it's just such nonsense. Especially like, if you buy into the thing, if you buy into the supposed culture, you know, and, and so many people are in this place where they're, where uh, they believe you're supposed to just drain your life out, you know, yeah. at this job. And the payoff is you go on a cruise and poison yourself for two weeks as much as you possibly can, you know, and, and then you come back and do it all over again. And you just, so the kids can go to the most expensive college possible. And, um, you know, yeah, there's another way to show our kids how to live. Yeah. And I'm not criticizing anyone's path. It's just, uh, man, I feel bad for a lot of people. They're just, ah, they just under the water, man, under the water. Yeah. I hate to see stifled creativity in anybody. I hate Mm -hmm. it, but you know? I've been there. I've yeah. Been there a yeah. Big way. yeah. Yeah. So you are, you make a point in some of your lyrics, especially with Joy and Madness. Um, and I'm referring to Little Bright World, where mm-hmm. you're talking about wanting to impact social change. Mm-hmm. So you're sort of at a point where you can choose. I mean, maybe you already have chosen. What is your, what is your give back vision? What do you want to do? Or what is your specific you know, I'm all about feminism and women's health and, you know, that kind of thing. What are you about? For me, um, in terms of the things that I, the, the causes I believe in, like here locally, um, there are a couple programs that I've done, um, shows for and like benefits for, and that I, I've been involved in long enough to see how really impactful they are. And one of them is, 
uh, St. John's program for real change um, that takes at-risk women and their families, either their children and um, people that are obviously dealing with, you know, drug addiction or domestic violence or just a situation they have to get out of, period. They might have been separated from their kids, um, brings them into a safe place. And then at from that point, um, really fosters job training and um, life skills, just balancing your checkbook, um, how to dress for a job interview. Like if there was one thing I saw in the jail, it's um, that people really do. There are people coming into life at a distinct disadvantage, um, mm-hmm. you know, for whatever reason. It, 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 you know, there's a lot of people in the world still that see someone on the side of the road and, you know, they just have that knee jerk, get a job, you know, kind of reaction or whatever. Yeah. And there are so many people out there that even if they aren't dealing with mental illness in the first place, um, have been through horrors that, that you and I would not even want to imagine, you know, through the most formative years of their life, they don't have the skills to get up and put on a suit and go get a job and do it, you know, do an interview and go get a job. So this program, um, has been incredibly effective and impactful in, in so many of these women's lives. And when I've gone and played, uh, these are the programs where they're honoring these women, their chef's dinners, a local chef will come, uh, and will, uh, provide, you know, food for a you know, couple hundred people. And it's every, I, I see the same women. I see that they're continuing to, uh, feel that impact in their lives. They're continuing on this, this path of, um, renewal in their lives. Their, their children are happy. They're happy. It's, it's so empowering to see that and to know that it's possible on a street level. Um, for me as a person, um, in terms of like, what I give to the world, I think um, it's what I was kind of saying a minute ago. Um, I think God's gifted me with um, perspective when it comes to seeing like other people's side, you know, of the story. Again, I think because of a, a song, and I think because of that, um, when I'm trying to make a stand on something or when I'm writing a song that's meant to speak to something like that, it's always about. Um, getting back to or getting people to kind of examine where their heart or soul is at, you know, and, and getting back to where the tensions start, you know, why they're in place. Um, politics and stuff like that is just all the artifice that's, that grows around, you know, us having to navigate our fear and, and, and prejudices and, and, needs and desires as human beings, you know, that's what kind of draws the lines between us. So yeah. I just try to come and give people a sense of perspective maybe. And then ultimately, especially with joy and madness, um, just release, just yeah. absolute yeah. Zen, absolutely like, plugged in electric release into the moment because yeah. so much fun. Yeah. I mean, it's the reason people so go to burning man. It's the reason, you know, it's, they just don't feel like they can just let it all out, you know, no, I know more and more. I know you're, you know, you're providing a service. People got to have <laughs> some fun. That's service. Yes. I actually, absolutely. I talked to Sarah Clark on the podcast a little while back with yes. um, Dirty Revival and about seriously, you're providing a really important public service. It's the fun factor. We can't live without it. And I know this because, um, you know, I'd say more and more in the last year or so, especially as I've gone through my evolution and I release myself more and more, what I find is people aren't just coming up and going, you got a great band, dude. Like the weirdest thing to me, and it started at like World Fest last year, I think is when I first started really taking notice of it. Um, People weren't just saying, hey, great band, great show. They would come up, put their hand on my shoulder and say, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Like, and then I'm having like in the last couple of weeks alone, you know, just starting to hear more stories about, you know, people or I'm having people come up and tell me their story about, Hey, we talked a year ago, dude. And you just like changed this, you know, my whole paradigm or whatever. And I went back to playing drums and I, you know, now I wanted to show you this video I posted online, you know, and that is a, that's a crazy thing for me to experience. One, because a lot of times I don't remember, I don't even remember the conversation or, the, or like a person's name and I feel like a complete douche, you know, and then. Um, but it but, wasn't your purpose at the moment to remember. 
It was yeah. your purpose to have that moment. Right, right. Yeah, that's I all you needed was that moment. Definitely fully in, uh, engaged in those moments. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I kind of give myself uh, yeah. all of it. If you're willing to, you know, provide service, those opportunities are going to come to you again and again and again. And you're in a really, really fortunate position to be able to kind of, you know, take your natural born talent and abilities and turn it into service like that. That is just so much fun. I'm recording. Thank you. You're a lucky guy. I feel, I definitely feel that way. And, um, even the, those five years, you know, working in the jail system, Obviously, uh, I'm aware of the perspective it gave me, especially with what we've got going on now. You know, a lot of uh, unrest right now between law enforcement and uh, society, and I, some of it fairly, and I think a lot of it um, definitely a misunderstanding of. There's a lot of people making a lot of judgment that can't even imagine what it would be like to do that job and to do yeah. it for five years or ten years or fifteen yeah. years. Yeah. Uh, no clue, no clue what a, a, an officer goes through on a daily basis. Right. Um, and no uh, empathy for what that will do to your, to anyone's psyche right. and soul, even, the, you know, the best, the best, you know, but. It can break anybody. Yeah. Even me. I would I mean, react if I was going to work and I was afraid for my life every day. <laughs> and you just see people lie, lie through their teeth. Yeah. every single day and work the system like in ways you couldn't even think of these guys you know people that can't necessarily um you know find regular employment they know exactly how to game the system all the loopholes and all the you know all the ways to work it it's there is a subculture that i think isn't um i think the story isn't informed uh isn't completely informed on both sides there's a lot of a lot of assumptions going on um, yeah. And a lot of ignorance, but a lot. And a lot of it comes from where you're getting your news sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you and, know, as you mentioned before, if you go look at 12 sites that say the same thing, that's going to validate your opinion, even though there are 50 other sites that are giving another perspective. Yeah. 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 You know, it's a lot of human beings thrown together on this planet these days. They really are. It's. So yeah. I got a practical question for you. Sure. But I'm always fascinated how people make it work. You know, you and your wife, sounds like you've been together for quite some time now. Yeah. And, you know, as I mentioned, I know a few musicians. And traditionally, musicians are not necessarily the most organized human beings. Is that accurate for you? Yeah. Yeah. I will say um, the cleanest that my little man cave studio ever is, is when Jonica comes in and rearranges it, like, out of the blue. Um, so but, she is, is she the, so how do you guys make it work out between, you know? Oh God, it's hard. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, it's funny, especially again with this, in the era of social media, you know, we're a big, shiny, happy couple. And there, I get a lot of response online. Anytime something of that nature is posted, a picture of like her and I, you know, at the Paul McCartney concert or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and people, celebrate and and i i i'm not uh, that's not sarcastic um it's people celebrate you know that kind of union and they celebrate that hope and yeah um, they tie into that i mean it's a little uh scary sometimes i think about how much impact it feels like that has but um it's not easy dude the you know the reality is you don't see each other as often as you want to um it's easy to go through spans of time where you don't feel connected we definitely go to counseling you know we um we have a a woman that we go to that we that we both really like a lot and uh inevitably as distant as we can feel uh whenever we kind of realign in that space it's always you know a very it's always very quick to melt you know into you know because you're you're just we're both looking at the same goals, you know, and we both obviously feel really blessed to, to have been born where we were born and to have, you know, found each other and to be living in a, you know, um, a level of living, a level of comfort. That's, that's truly remarkable. You know, Um, I don't take anything for granted. So, and to have healthy children and, and, you know, 
live in a beautiful part of the world. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, I, uh, it's funny cause I, I struggled with all that. Like I said, in those first couple of years with, uh, with the early, the early years of the babies, just going through that depression, you just feel like such a jerk. Cause you're like, what do I have to be sad about? You know, musicians, it's just a different, different breed, you know, but, yeah. um, yeah. Yeah. I think if she lived through that, she can pretty much live through anything. I mean, even after coming out of the jail system for a minute, you know, moving into full-time music, I was stressed out all the time, sure. all the time. And yeah, definitely in disarray a lot, you know, I, I tend to collect piles of stuff in this studio, but that's definitely gotten better. I've um, actively worked on those things and I finally came to a point in my life where I had to tell myself, Hey, every day is 24 hours you're you have unrealistic expectations about what you're going to accomplish in a day there's always going to be something left to do at the end of the day you know yeah if you're not happy doing this then what's going on you know so i'm definitely conscious of unplugging from not even just uh, the digital age but my own head yeah there's a never-ending stream of music and ideas in my head that i have to pull out and say hey eli What's that? What is that you're working on over there? You know, um, it was. I found this cool, this cool little article um, a couple of days ago online. I uh, about thirty questions to ask your kids instead of "How was your day?" Oh, and yeah. it has been. I got, copied it and pasted it into my notes in my iPhone. Totally been doing it, and it's the best because it's stuff like, "Hey, did you did you catch anyone pick their note picking their nose today?" Or like which one of your 10 year old boy, right? And like, even better, did anyone fart in class? Right. (laughs) Because it's, it was, I mean, everything they described in the article was what I was dealing with. You know, how was your day? Fine. Yeah. You know, what is, how, well, what'd you, did you eat your lunch? You know, how's your homework? Get all that stuff out of the way. And then it's like, now what? And I, I mean, I'm a talkative, gregarious person, but you know, it's, uh, you got to ask the right questions. You got to find your ways to connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I have been on the phone for quite some time now. Yes, I think have. it's time for me to ask you our final question. And you actually sort of answered it earlier, but mm-hmm. I'll let you expound on this. Where are you in your life as a parent? I think um, I'm finally realizing uh, I'm, I'm taking, I'm at a point in my life where I'm taking some of the pressure off of myself um, that would be difficult to navigate in the past. Um, I'm giving my kids more trust. I feel like, um, again, like I said earlier, this is kind of the sweet spot. I feel like I'm conscious of exactly where my kids are, are, are in their life. And I feel like I can finally kind of relate in a way where they're really listening and understanding the advice I might have. It's funny. I, I, I was beating myself up, like I said earlier for how I was during some of my earlier years, but I realized, um, you are who you are and you're going to be valuable to your children in, in big ways at different stages in your life. You're not always going to be, um, the thing they need at that moment, but, the advice and the experience that I have is going to come in, uh, is going to come into play and be valuable at um, different different integral moments in their lives. Yeah. And I'm enjoying, I guess, that moment right now. I feel like um, what I have to offer is impactful at just exactly where they are in their lives right now, and I'm happy mm-hmm. for that. Parenthood lasts a lifetime. You don't yes. have to, you know, only emphasize the first newborn. Yes, know. exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's just a short window in time. The rest of it is longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hans, this has been a lot of fun. I really enjoy talking to you. I really and appreciate you having me on. All right. We'll talk soon. Thank you. There's a magic in the music. So I take it to my soul and I use it. My daddy played guitar. It was the first one. Took me up on his knees and said, son, hear the Beatles and Bob Dylan. And I kept coming back, sitting up again and again. Cause music takes you where you need it most. And you're through the joy and pain. I've been in love with it for all my life.
Our guest today was Hans Eberbach. You can learn more about his work at hansrocks.com and about the band Joy and Madness at joyandmadness.com. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenthood is produced in Portland, Oregon by Alex Ford at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. You can learn more about me at genefaulkner.com. Email me, gene at genefaulkner. Tweet me at genefaulkner. And be sure and share the heck out of this podcast. Thanks for listening, and let's talk again next week. Bye-bye.